Welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Paris Jackson, the host of Crosscut Now on KCTS 9 and the host for this podcast. Today, we're listening into a deep dive into the technology industry's midlife crisis. It's a conversation with Washington Post writer Will Oramus and journalist Lizzie O'Leary at the Crosscut Ideas Festival in Seattle. Oramus and O'Leary explore the metaphor of midlife crisis, where Oramus suggests these now middle-aged big tech companies are feeling old, attacked by lawmakers with regulations and no longer loved by their users. In this new chapter for tech giants, companies like Microsoft, Google, and Facebook are cutting back by laying off workers in an effort to slim down and stay relevant. Aramis says each major company is grappling with this question, now what? How do they keep growing and remain dominant? The two revisit what made these tech giants powerful, the tactics they used to get there, and how backlash started nearly 10 years ago. As artificial intelligence provides the current wow factor in technology, there are new disruptors complicating the technology ecosystem, presenting opportunities and threats to consider. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation. Please share your feedback on the podcast with us by sending it to talks at crosscut.com. Now let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to the Crosscut Festival. My name is Lizzie O'Leary, and I am the host of the Slate podcast, What Next TBD, which is a show about tech, power, and how the future will be determined. And today, we're going to talk about what we're calling Big Tech's Midlife Crisis. I am joined by Will Aremus, um, a friend and technology writer for The Washington Post, who is definitely the kind of person I want to interrogate these questions with. Uh, Will, thank you so much for joining me. Lizzie, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. So I actually want to start by just playing with this this phrase, this big tax mid big tax midlife crisis idea. Um, do do you think it's actually accurate to say big tech is having a midlife crisis? Yeah, I think you could say that. I mean, look, in a midlife crisis, you're supposed to like go out and buy shiny new toys, right? I don't know if they're I don't know if they're really at that stage, but they're definitely trying to recapture the dynamism of their youth, and they're feeling like a little old and sclerotic. They're they're you know getting attacked by lawmakers. They're kind of starting to be hated by people instead of loved by people. Um, they're they're huge. They've been making money forever. You know they're they're uh, they're fat and happy where they should be, but they are not making it as fast as they want to. So now they're laying people off left and right. They're trying to cut back, trying to get back to being those lean, mean disruption machines that they that they were in their youth. Yeah. What is the company equivalent of? buying a sports car or like having an inappropriate relationship is it is it renaming your company meta and then staggering around a little bit trying to figure out what that means i think it has to be that i think well, what else could it be i mean they, and there's you know microsoft is out there buying activision a gaming company i mean everybody's they're all trying to stay relevant um, and then google is is struggling to keep up with the new kids on the ai block and and so yeah i mean i think they're they're all in different ways grappling with the fact that they that they got huge they became the kings of the world they're they're dominant and it's like now what now what like how do you keep growing from there uh and and how do you not become the thing that you that you set out to disrupt in the first place i mean um you know google facebook they started out not wanting to be ibm or microsoft or yahoo right. now I, I think they're there 
Okay, well, first, before we get into the kind of the, the arc of where they are right now, I actually want to explain to people that the reason they can see the microphones is that you and I are also taping my podcast um, where we talk about this kind of stuff a lot. And I think I want to look at this idea of a, a company and industry life cycle. Like if we're using the midlife crisis analogy, the youth or maybe the the successful young adulthood, what do you think propelled the the big tech companies to that place? Was it just low interest rates? Was it venture capital money? Like what was the thing that made them such powerful 25-year-olds? I mean, I, I think on some level, it's, e- it's easy to forget, but they they built really good stuff, right? Like the, like Google is kind of an awesome tool. Google Search is a great tool. Uh, Google Translate is amazing. Google Maps is great. Um, Facebook was even even <laughs> was great in some ways. It's 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 hard to remember, but you know, it connected it connected us with our networks, our, our friends and family, in a way that wasn't really possible before, unless you like were really meticulous about maintaining email. Hmm. distribution lists or that kind of thing. Um, you know, Apple, um, made personal technology simpler and, and easier and, you know, the, the stuff that just worked. Um, so they built great stuff, honestly. I, and I think that, that, you know, they you deserve think we forget that, for that now. I, 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 I tend to forget it because I focus on all their flaws. I focus on, on, you know, all the ways in which they make our lives, uh, worse or in which they, they, um, provide end runs around institutions or norms that were actually really important, it turns out. Um, but, you know, yeah, I think they built really great tools. And then, and then came the, the issue of how do you make money from it? And for a while, they were just growing so fast that they didn't have to, like, press really hard on the, on the money-making levers. Well, and they were subsidized. I mean, so, some of these companies, but then also the, the smaller ones, the Ubers of the world, were subsidized by venture capitalists hoping for a spectacular return. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, it, you know, it, it's, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. I mean, Uber and Lyft on some level, yeah, it was like a seamless experience to be able to open your phone and have a, and have a, a car show up. Um, but on some level they were just, they were sort of like arbitrage, right? Like they were, as you suggested, they were taking VC money and using that to artificially discount the price of, of hailing a ride from what taxis were able to do. And, uh, you know, we've seen over the years, like Uber and Lyft are, are now dominant, but they're not, nobody loves Uber or Lyft anymore. It's, it, it turns out that most of what they were doing was just like, you know, using cheaper labor, not having to pay benefits because they didn't have real employees and, and um, you know, and, and just uh, undercutting the, the existing businesses that were out there until they could become dominant. And now they become the, the thing that we, that we don't like the way we used to not like uh, having to hail a taxi. You alluded to this a little bit, but, you know, you talked about the layoffs. I, I wonder where you see kind of the place where things started to sour. Is it public opinion shifting or or interest rates going up? Like, where did this inflection point start to come? Because now if, if we're talking about a midlife crisis, th- there was something slightly preceding that. And I, I, I like kind of wonder where you put that in this timeline. So I wrote a piece for Slate in 2017 about <laughs> how about the rise of the phrase big tech. Um, you know, that was, that was a sign of trouble, I said at the time, because when you start getting labeled big, that means that people are worried about you or they fear you. They, they, they don't love you anymore. Um, it goes back to, you know, big Teddy Roosevelt, um, and big business as a, as a prelude to his trust busting campaign, um, FDR and the big taking on the big banks, um, 
once you're called big, you're in trouble. And huh. so I think that was around the mid 20 teens um, when it started to become clear that these that these you know start these fun quirky startups that were gonna um, you know not be evil in Google's case or or make things that just work uh, or think different in Apple's case that they were actually the, the new incumbents and that they were gonna wield their power in ways that weren't necessarily good for everybody else. And so then that's when you started to see the backlash and and the regulatory scrutiny and journalists, I mean, the tech press had been really laudatory of these companies, um, almost like boosterism in a lot of cases um, from maybe 2010 to 2015, and then started to started to apply a different lens, which is like, okay, Facebook was moving fast and breaking things. What is it exactly that's getting broken here? And are, are we really okay with that? Um, and looking for all the ways in which they're, they're sort of like screwing up society instead of making it better. I think there's also a funny thing where the pandemic maybe gave some of these companies like a little extra runway that they might not have had otherwise, but sort of as we started to go into some of the strongest COVID-19 restrictions, we, we were supposed to get kind of anti-big tech bills in Congress. We were supposed to see public opinion shift even more strongly. And then the world stopped. I feel like maybe the pandemic gave these companies a, a little extra lifeline. I think that's a great point, Lizzie. I think you're right. It did. And we saw that, that yeah, and maybe they would have been starting to plateau in 2019, 2020. Um, and instead, they, they had this new surge um, because everybody had to be online all the time. Not everybody, but, you know, white collar workers were online all the time. Um, and, and people had to socialize online and people watched a lot of, you know, a lot of videos online. And, and so um, there was this there was this second, you know, this the second wind that they got. And then as that uh, as the restrictions eased, we saw, I mean, all of them together you know, their, their, um, growth leveled off or even reversed in some cases. Um, you know, last year, meta, uh, the Facebook parent meta for the Facebook for the first time, I guess, lost users. I mean, and, yeah. and that was, you know, a, a landmark, I think. And so I, I don't actually think that the current round of, of layoffs, I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's the turning point in the history of big tech. I think it's a combination of, of things that you've mentioned. I, mean, I think it's the, the interest rates. It's the it's the end of the pandemic. Um, I think it's sort of a correction um, rather than rather than a 180 reversal in, in the history of these companies. We are going to open up for our audience questions later in, in the conversation. But I, one thing I want to explore with you a little bit is, you know, you have spent a lot of time delving into some of these companies' attempts to, to stay relevant. I think about a, a story that you wrote about Facebook's Horizon Worlds and actually a, a conversation you and I had about like a, a child on there who you encountered when, when you uh, went into the metaverse. Can, can you chart out what the, the various big tech companies have been trying over the past year or two? Like, where are they trying to get a foothold if we're saying the the era of explosive growth is over? Yeah, I mean, that's and that goes back to the idea that the, these companies were, were founded and built on the idea that they would always be on the cutting edge, that they would be building the new, new thing. And so once, you know, Facebook as a social network was mature, once Google search was mature, um, 
uh, they went looking for what's what's next, right? What can we build next? What can we be at the forefront of next? How can we expand our our empire and keep it, you know, keep it growing? Um, and so, they've always been on the lookout for that stuff. I mean, and and Facebook has been among the savviest. They bought um, Instagram way back before anybody, you know, almost anybody saw that Instagram could be a threat to Facebook. They bought it for it for what at the time seemed like a lot of money. I think it was like, what it was a billion dollars or something. And, and now seems tiny um, given what Instagram has become. Um, they bought WhatsApp before a lot of people realized that like group messaging was, was a big part of tech's future and that, um, you know, WhatsApp was gaining, was becoming really almost the dominant um, online communication means in, in many different countries around the world, although not the U S. Um, so now, I mean, it's, it's a continuation of that, but they're, but they're, they're struggling to find the hits, right? Like they keep, they keep buying, like Facebook bought Oculus and um, the VR company. And, and yeah, they, they're now the leading VR company, but does anybody really want VR? It's still not clear after all the time and money that's been poured into it. And meanwhile, you know, TikTok has come along and, and that's, you know, that's the new Facebook really. That's where people are spending their time. And Facebook hasn't been able to come up with an answer to that, except let's see if we can kind of like quietly build this idea that TikTok is this evil Chinese company and get them, you know, get them regulated or Do you see Facebook or- behind that push? I, you know, Facebook, I'm sure Facebook will deny, will deny it. I mean, they, they'll say that they don't want to see TikTok banned necessarily. Um, but yeah, we, I mean, my, one of my colleagues did a, did a story about how Facebook had been sort of, you know, secretly funding these, these AstroTurf local news campaigns to emphasize the dangers of TikTok challenges and how our kids were, our kids were in danger. And, and you know, the tech companies for, for, for the most part, their, their lobbies have not gone to bat for TikTok with TikTok under under all the scrutiny that it's under right now. So they're really playing, you know, they're playing defense. Um, and, and it's it's actually kind of hard to remember the last time one of those big tech giants came up with a new product that was really like the hot new thing. Um, it's, I, you know, it's I think it's been a while. Yeah, otherwise they what? Just buy small companies, right? And and kind of incorporate them into, into the mothership. Yeah, and, and, you know, and that has worked um, to, to an extent. But like Google, if you think back to, I don't know, 24, 14 maybe Google was it was a moonshot factory right it was like in a cure cancer and like send you know uh, have internet sat, you know satellites in space I don't even remember all the details it was gonna it was doing everything it was like the company that was gonna save the world and and almost none of that stuff panned out I mean it's not to say that, that they haven't made any progress on any of those problems but they have, certainly haven't reached the moon on any of them um, and so uh, this idea that they could that they could just continually keep inventing the future I think you know I, I, that that has proven not to really be uh, the case. So I, w- I want to dig in on some of those ideas about the future and sort of figure out where where we're going. Um, we writ large. I want to talk about social media. You you have mentioned TikTok. I know also that you have been spending a lot of time on Blue Sky, which is no, like sh- a new. Do not tell my editors that I've been spending a lot of time on Blue. Sky. You have not been spending any time on Blue Sky. You are a hundred percent reporting all the time. <laughs> Come yes. on, man. This is your job. I'm nodding, um, I'm nodding solemnly. I want to talk about decentralized social media. Like what what is that? Why should I care? Yeah, so I so at the same time that the 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 tech giants are are trying to sell us on their new versions of the future, people are increasingly interested in someone else's idea of what the future should look like, whether that's whether that's TikTok, um whether that's I I assume we'll get into like ChatGPT. Oh yeah. Um we're going to talk about AI. 
And and you know one of the one of the I don't know that Twitter was ever quite big tech. It was it wanted to be big tech, you know. But uh, but it certainly it was I would in say that. big tech in terms of the the sort of like public attention it captured, but was always this kind of like weird small company. Yeah, yeah, and and so uh, Twitter, you know, was was never able to like hit it big with the mainstream the way Facebook did, and so it was always in financial peril. And finally, it gets bought by Elon Musk. And uh, and all of a sudden, a lot of people. I mean, some people on the right are like really excited about this and feel great about it. A lot of the people who love Twitter are like, "Wow, this sucks now. Like, what are we going to do instead?" And so, one of the ideas that kind of like came a little out of left field was was this idea of decentralized social media, where you where a company will build a protocol um, for people to to like send messages to their followers and, and, you know, send DMS and whatever else. And then other developers can come in and build the, the, you know, different layers on that. They can, they can build their own server and do their own content moderation. They can, um, build their own apps for a different, you know, different interfaces for using this. You're, you're this describing network. the architecture of Mastodon basically. Yeah, that's, yeah. So Mastodon was the first to do it. And it, and for a long time, it didn't get any traction because it's like kind of clunky and, and wonky and like hard to understand. And so it was like sort of dead, but it, there was like, a, there was like enough people to keep it going. And then when Musk took over Twitter, all of a sudden people are looking for, for a backup. Right. And so people flock to Mastodon. Um, now, a lot of people flocked right back away from Mastodon when they when they figured out how slow how slow it is and and um, you know even the first thing you have to do is like figure out what server you're going to join. Well, what the hell does that mean, right? Um, but now um, Jack Dorsey had had also been interested in this idea of decentralized social media. He funded a startup um, called Blue Sky that built its own version that so far seems much less wonky, like much, you can just use it like Twitter, even though it has this decentralized underpinning and people are loving it so far. Like people are, uh, people are thrilled to be on there. They're like, this is what Twitter felt like 10 or 15 years ago. Like when it was actually fun, it's, it's, there's like vibes of like Tumblr of 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and so I, you know, I don't know that it's going to take off. It has a lot of problems between, you know, to solve between now and, and ever becoming mainstream. Um, but I, you know, I think, it, I think it just shows that, that people are looking for, for something different and, and maybe, maybe this decentralized, um, way of doing it is kind of a reaction to big tech. It's a reaction to the idea that one company should be the decider of how we all interact online or, or what we can say and what we can't say, um, or, or, you know, what features are going to be rolled out. I, I want to interrogate that a little bit though, because I think one of the things that is, maybe appealing about a, a Twitter or what have you is the chance to to encounter people who you wouldn't encounter in real life, right? Who wouldn't be the people you would choose necessarily to follow. And I, I wonder if decentralization kind of silos people into their own camps. I think there's a chance of that. I mean, I, I think that the, the bigger thing that might silo people into their own camps is just if there's not one dominant network, um, you know, Facebook is losing losing that status rapidly. Um, TikTok is is kind of on its way to it, but it doesn't. It's not really an omnibus social media site like Facebook was, where you can do everything with 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 all your friends. If there's not really one, you know social network for your friends and family like there was with Facebook, if there's not just one real-time feed of sort of news and information and opinions and jokes like Twitter, 
um, then yeah, I think we, we could start to get some, some siloing. We've already seen that on the right with, with True Social and Parler and Getter and Gab. I can't even remember all the names of them. Um, you know, there's, there's, clearly, there's clearly appetite for some siloing. And, and maybe that, I don't know, maybe that's the thing. I, I think the decentralization isn't the biggest obstacle to, to like chance encounters because with these protocols, the, the whole point is like you can be on one server, Lizzie, and I can be on a different server and we can still see each other's mm. tweets or toots or skeets. Uh, Whatever we're calling them. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, but, but yeah, no, I, I, do, I do think that like if to the extent that, that the era of like one dominant platform may be, um, changing, ending, whatever, um, maybe there will be more, more siloing where people sort themselves out onto the platform that seems to reflect their values or their, their vibes. Do you think, I'm, I'm thinking back to when I joined Twitter, which was 2009, and the kind of internet content that I interacted with then, but, but also the Facebook of that era and, and other social networks, um, there was a naivete, maybe um, a hope, a, a belief that communicating and connecting w- was something that was a force for good. And I just, I, I wonder if we've soured on that. Oh yeah. I've soured on it. Haven't you? <laughs> I, I mean, mean, yes, but I'm asking you in a rhetorical way. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I think the, there was the, the dream for big tech was that you, that these companies could um, be forces for good and make crap tons of money. And like, and and I think we're finding out that you, they're like big tech can't have it all. Um, they, you know, they they if they want to make crap tons of money, and they clearly like clearly that we've seen time after time that that's their number one imperative when it when it comes down to it. Um, they're they're going to be making choices all the time that make them not a force for good. And and the idea that just inherently somehow connecting people would result, you know, just in good outcomes was always was, yeah, it was always naive. And, you know, I, I think that there were critics from, from early on, um, especially, um, women of color, people of color, people who experienced like the, the downsides, the dark sides of these, of, of this connection, um, earlier than the white men who were building it and in charge of it. Um, you know, there, there, there are great things about people all around the world being able to instantly say anything to anybody. Um, and there are some pretty horrible things about it. And so I think, I think some of these, some of these new ventures are an attempt to like, sort sort that out like is there a way that we can is there a way that we can feel connected to other people but not have just um you know not have a realm like facebook where where it's full of like grifters trying to get our clicks and or a realm like twitter where it's like where the people who are like the most vitriolic or hateful or bigoted are the ones who are going to get huge followings and and you know we have these public fights uh between factions You've teed up my question about Elon Musk so beautifully. Um, because if we're doing a tech conversation, I have to talk about Elon. I'm sorry. That's just how it goes. Do you think, and I recognize that this is a provocative question, but what has happened with Twitter over the past year, is that enough to drive a stake into the heart of the kind of single tech genius trope? It should be. <laughs> I don't think it will be no, but I mean, this. Why do we love this idea? Why is this idea so pervasive and yet so wrong? I, you know, I, I, I would have to, I would have to defer to like psych, psych evolutionary psychologists or, or you know, uh, literature or sociologists, somebody. But like, 
throughout history, we've wanted heroes. And, and in the past, in the past 30 to 40 years, this new archetype of hero of like the tech genius, uh, you know, twiddling knobs in a Silicon Valley garage and changing the world has been one of the, one of the types of heroes that we look for. And Steve jobs and, um, you know, page and Bryn and, uh, at Google and, um, and Elon Musk uh, with with Tesla and SpaceX, and it was always a myth, right? I mean, it was not it's not to say that there weren't smart people doing innovative things in garages. Clearly, there were, uh, and clearly, the things they built have changed the world. But the idea that it was their it was their singular genius that made it happen was always a myth. I mean, it was always a combination of like right place at the right time, right idea at the right time, the right connections. Um, you know, in, in Musk's case, you know, he's kind of. Uh, erased the fact that he didn't actually start Tesla. It was already going. And then he came in with a pile of money and kind of forced out the guys who started it. Um, so, and then we've got uh, stuff like Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos where she was like clearly playing into that mythology. She was like the female Steve Jobs right down to the, to the turtlenecks. And, and, you know, she turned out to be a total fraud. And I think, I think it would, it would do us all good to bear in mind that, that just because someone is, very smart and successful in the tech industry doesn't mean that they're good. You know, often the most successful ones are the most brutal cutthroat ones. Um, and I think Jobs and, and Musk fit into that category. So let's talk about what the next thing is. Um, Silicon Valley is always looking for the hot new thing. And I, I feel like the last couple of years there have been some murmurings and then some fails. Uh, what have you seen gain speed and maybe stall out and and what are you excited by yeah we talked at the beginning about whether big tech's buying shiny new toys we actually haven't seen as much of that and i think it's partly sorry this is a bit of a, a digression but there's this Go for we, it. we alluded earlier to um you know the the regulatory scrutiny of the tech giants and um the the growing momentum before and during the pandemic to to uh pass antitrust legislation maybe break up big tech elizabeth warren made this a, a centerpiece for her presidential campaign. Um, and that has all kind of stalled out on the legislative front. Um, uh, and the, you know, the tech lobby sort of won. I mean, they spent really big to kill this stuff and the, and they succeeded, um, at least for now and for the foreseeable future. On the but Hill, I, I would say they've succeeded. I'm not sure they've succeeded where the FTC is concerned. That's right. Yes. Yes. So the FTC is extremely aggressive uh, under Lena Khan and, and there, there are changes afoot um, in terms of administrative regulation. But I think there's also an, this like underrated aspect of it, which is just all the scrutiny about antitrust really constrained the companies. I think there were a lot of huge, splashy pur purchases they would have loved to make and didn't make because they knew it would further the chance of them getting, you know, be, becoming the subject of trust busting. And so I think there actually has been a, a significant significant constraint on the companies just from the idea that antitrust is a real thing now and just from the idea that wielding your your dominance to crush rivals might might get you in trouble even if it you know even if it hasn't resulted in new laws um so all of that is to say that instead of being able to buy the shiny new thing in recent years they've been you know the tech industry has been looking well can we build can we build the next thing and and Facebook with the metaverse, there was uh, crypto, which actually didn't come from big tech per se. I mean, it was a little more, it was a little more grassroots. Um, but, you know, crypto and Web3, there was a time, I think just like two years ago, when like everybody said that Web3 was, everybody in tech was Whatever trying to solve that Web3 was the future. Whatever Web3 means. 
and it didn't really, yeah. And it never really meant anything except like, let's find new ways to, to scam people out of money and get rich. Um, and, and, and I think to the credit of like critics and society and the media, like they, we, we didn't get fooled again in a way. I mean, we did, you know, some people did, a lot of people lost their shirts, but, but there, I think that we as a society are more ready now, um, when, when tech is trying to sell us on this is the new thing to say, well, wait a minute, are you sure? Like, is this, is this actually going to make things better? Or is it just going to make you money? Um, so that has kind of died down and it, it was sort of a house of cards all along. Um, now we've got, we've got AI. And I think that's a little different because this is, this is a technology that's, you know, there's like, there's like, re, there's a there, there, there's like real stuff behind it. It's been, it's been, uh, percolating for decades and now we're at this point with the development of, of large language models where ai is suddenly doing stuff that's making people go holy crap and that's what tech hasn't had for so long for for so many years tech hasn't had that that thing that makes people go wow like i can't believe it can do that and that's what ChatGPT did when it came out in november so i think this is a great moment to sort of take stock of what ai as we see it now can do and then maybe where the the people who own or license these tools think about where they're going right like you and i as consumers can mess around on chat gpt and have it do web searches and have it write copy or answer questions but i don't think that microsoft is plunking a you know 10 billion dollar investment into open ai for you and me w what is the what's the game plan I think one of the interesting things about the tech industry is that they've always been willing to to figure out the money game plan later. They kind of they, they they kind of trust that if they can just get us all hooked on something, that the money will come. And that you know, and I think there's I think there's truth to that. Um, it, it, it does allow them to focus on building cool stuff first and then worry about the business later. The thing is, inevitably, they're going to have to worry about the business. And it's really easy when ChatGPT is being offered for free and every and VC money is going into all these AI startups and all the big tech companies are subsidizing it to feel like, oh, this is free, it's great, there's no downside. And we have to remember that there is, as you said, I mean, there is gonna be a need to monetize it. They're gonna, they're gonna find a way to use these tools to separate us from our money. And, and so, uh, you know, we should be on the lookout for that. We shouldn't be under the illusion that, that this stuff won't come with, with costs of its own. So to, to train a large language model, whether it's ChatGPT or, or something else, you need a, a tremendous amount of data, right, for the, for the AI to learn from. And you also need a tremendous amount of computing power, which is expensive. And so this is another place where I guess I start to wonder if those two things mean that AI is concentrated in the in the hands of the companies that can pay for those things. Yeah, I mean, I think in the, at least in the short term, the companies that are going to benefit the most financially are the ones that that have the giant, you know, clouds of the giant clouds and all the computing power um, that the that the models have to be trained on and that the models run on. Um, and so, I think you know, in, in a sense, even though the narrative is, oh, look, this upstart OpenAI came along with ChatGPT, and there's other upstarts with like Midjourney and and Stability AI and Anthropic, they're coming along and disrupting the big tech companies, and that's I think that's real. I think the big tech companies are worried about 
losing users to to these upstarts but on some level like they're so entrenched now like nobody else has the computing power and in fact when OpenAI, um you know they started out wanting to be this nonprofit that was going to be about building ai responsibly and that was their whole mission statement and then they found that in order to do like the stuff they wanted to do they needed like really expensive computers. And so they had to go to Microsoft and be like, hey, you know, want to invest in us because we need your computers. And so that's how Microsoft got its in with, with OpenAI. And then over the years, OpenAI has found that it, it, it found or decided, I don't know how you want to put it, but like they're no longer just a nonprofit. Like they had to be able to um, sell investors on the idea that the that they'll be able to make you know 10x returns on their money or more, and so they they started this for-profit subsidiary, which is this really weird like only in only in Silicon Valley structure, um, and uh, and so yeah, there, there's there's it, it requires big money, it requires big computing power, um, and then I maybe maybe you're going to mention this. I mean, the other thing about that about that training process where you train these models on like everything that's ever been written on Reddit and Tumblr and every patent that's ever been filed in the world um, is that you end up, you end up with like this, these data sets that are full of all the worst biases on the right. internet. And, and now like people are looking to chat GPT to answer their questions about the world or to develop to like, you know, develop their lesson plans or trip itineraries or to write essays or to write online content. I'm, I'm finishing the story. Um, I shouldn't, shouldn't say too much, but about like all the, the AI content that's already out there on the web. And so, um, and those biases are going to get embedded in that, in that content. And the fact that there's only a few companies, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. There's, fact, there's only a few companies building these giant models that are underpinning all this whole AI language and image revolution means that these same few models and their biases are going to pervade the online world in, with, with, I think, consequences that we haven't really grappled with yet. And and we are already seeing, you know, I think many many of the pioneers of AI kind of wringing their hands about this, um, which is a, a whole other conversation. Um, yeah, to, to maybe after they've already cashed out, I don't know. There's a, there's it's a very complicated thing. Um, I'm actually going to delve into some of our audience questions because we have a lot and they're very good. Um, this is one from Gary. Do you see any new tech companies coming that could upend or pass some of these big tech giants? I think they're. I think they are really hard to upend or pass. And again, it, you know, it's it's case by case. I think Facebook is vulnerable in a way right now that Google and Apple are not in a way that Microsoft is, is not at this moment. Mm -hmm. um, but this is not like. I mean, there was this idea in in maybe I don't know maybe post the after the Microsoft antitrust case from then until maybe twenty. 10 or 2015 or so there was this idea that the internet was so dynamic that like nobody really had a defensible moat that at any time a startup could come along and overturn the industry you know they could do to google and amazon what um facebook did to myspace or what google did to to you know alta vista Alta and Yahoo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh and so um and I think that that's no longer the case. I mean, these companies are so huge and so powerful that they, they and they have their fingers in so many pots and they own so many of the pipes that we, that that all the upstarts have to use that they really are are somewhat impregnable in at least the medium term. Um, 
as far as companies, I think we've we've touched on really the two companies that have come along and and been uh, even able to make the the giants nervous. And that's TikTok, which is owned by the, the Chinese company ByteDance, and it's uh, ChatGPT, which is which is owned by OpenAI. But what you know, OpenAI is like completely in bed with Microsoft already. So and, and ByteDance is a, is a tech giant of its own. I mean, it's 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 a, a massive company. So I, you know, I I, I think that that the, the ability for an upstart to come along and change everything is not what it used to be. I, I'm jumping around a bit in, in the questions, but you mentioned TikTok. And I, this question I find really interesting, this is from Sandy saying, my teen told me that she wouldn't care if social media went away. She uses TikTok and Instagram a lot. So I find it interesting that she feels that way. What do you think about that dichotomy? And, and I want to note that I literally just talked to a teen last week uh, for a show about this. I feel like there's suddenly teenagers saying like, I'm not sure I want to do this. Good for them. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, we, 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 our, our generation, Lizzie, like got it, got addicted to, to Facebook and whatever else without really considering again, without really considering what the downsides might be. Like, what are we, what are we not doing when we're spending two hours a day scrolling through social media feeds and and what are we losing there? And I, I, I think there's like some signs of hope that the younger generation is, you know, maybe more thoughtful about that. I've, I have also seen teens who are really ambivalent about their use of TikTok. I um, mean, they love, they like, I love it. I can't live without it, but also it kind of scares me that I can't live without it. And maybe that's not a good thing. And there are teens who don't use, you know, who, who, who don't use social media intentionally um, or, or who try to limit their time on social media. So, you know, I think they're, you know, to some degree, like shifting, like better understanding, shifting norms can, can help. Um, but, but ultimately, like these 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 social media tools, like these tech tools, tap into our psychology on a sort of basic level that's really hard yeah. to fight. And and um, you know, you can see it. <laughs> Elon Musk is a great example. Like, I'm not saying Elon Musk was a good guy even before he got Twitter pilled, but like, you know, he he's he he's clearly a Twitter addict. Like, he can't stop. He can't. He can't, he can't stop. stop it's self destructive. I mean, it might take down his whole business empire at this point, and he cannot stop posting or caring about what other people post because it's it's like it's, it's really tapping into like our deepest fears and and needs and desires. Um, so I'm not I'm not super optimistic that like future generations will will be able to to handle this to, to follow on that though there are multiple state legislatures Utah Arkansas that have some type of you know social media if not outright ban but you can only use it with you know parental consent there is a bill I believe Brian Schatz introduced a bill in the Senate um, that we would do some similar things do you think we're moving toward a place where the conversation about teens and the kind of online world becomes a more heavily regulated one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We're moving that direction. And, and it's just a question of like how far and then how, how smart or how dumb, right? Like, like, um, you know, the EU has really been, I think people in the U S still don't appreciate the extent to which the EU has changed the landscape of the internet with its much more aggressive uh, approach to regulation. And some of their regulations have, have backfired and some of them have, have, front fired some of them have worked you know maybe been maybe been good um and you know in the u.s we can't really do much at a federal level because our our government is broken at that level and then at the state level i mean things are so partisan that you get you get one state passing 
a, a law that a blue state passing a, a, a social media law that's like com the complete opposite of what a red state is doing, right? Like blue states are are trying to say like, well, you know, we're not going to let social media algorithms amplify hate, and then you know the red state is saying, well, we're not going to let them do, we're not going to let them stop hate. You know, we're going to we're going to require them to carry hate and amplify hate on their social networks. Um, and so, um, you know, whether this whether the <laughs> I think it's going to be a mess for a while. I mean, you look at some of these state regu regulations. I think that some of them are really misguided some of them are going to be overturned by the courts but maybe slowly eventually gradually we're we're going to figure out as 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 a society and as societies how to how to like rein in a little bit the 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 unchecked power of these of these giant platforms we have another question about ai um and this is kind of provocative like the all the companies racing to to make ai products what does one of them, quote unquote, winning look like? That's a that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, on, on the most basic level, I mean, OpenAI is winning because ChatGPT is the one that's become a household name. Like, if you yeah. ask that, if you ask, you know, your your coworker or your family member, you know, what's Bard or what's Bing or what's Anthropic, you know, they, you're going to get a blank stare probably, but maybe not for Bing, but they'll still think of the search engine. Um, ChatGPT, we found so we found in in giving away secrets again we found in like our our headline tests that um the term chat gpt actually does better than ai like people recognize really? that wow. the average reader gets that like chat gpt is a thing they know what it's that means interested in it so that's that's one sign of winning i think again i think there's a sense in which the the companies with the huge uh server clouds are, are winning because that you know for all the reasons we talked about um and i think there's a lot that's still up in the air i mean there's there are real questions about whether the company that owns the 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 underlying model um, you know, how much rent can they extract from all the other companies that are going to be building on those models and making the user the user interfaces and the tooling systems, um, you know, who's going to be, this is really, I mean, sadly, like one story of the history of big tech is, has been like, um, you know, who's going to be the new landlords, who's going to be the ones who get to just cash the rent, you know, cash the rent checks every month and who are the ones who are going to have to pay the rent? Well, the, I mean, to that end, Reddit, this is very dorky, but Reddit just started or just said it's going to start charging for for use of its API, basically like the massive store of Reddit data that these companies are training their their large language models on because they've been doing it for free. And Reddit said, like, no, thank you. If you're yeah, going to train like, your models, you got to yeah, pay us. Yeah, I mean, and I don't, I don't have a dog in the fight with, when it comes to Reddit, but like, wouldn't it be? It's, it's, it's funny that it's almost like a radical idea that the people who actually produced all the language online, like us, the users, us? yeah, um, you know, might have any. You know, what if we were the rent, you know, the rent collectors somehow? Like, what if the fact that they had to use our Reddit posts and our tweets and skeets, you know, to train their models meant that we would somehow benefit? Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. It's just like not the way our our society works. Um, but but there is this battle. I mean, it is, and it's a live issue. Like who, who owns the data, um, and and what do they get in return for people using the data? Uh, who owns the models? What do they get when people use the models? Um, all that kind of stuff. I think is is up in the air and being fought over. Um, this is a simple question. What about Amazon? Where do they fit into this? Good good question. Yeah, a simple but a good one. I mean, you know, Amazon's a game plan from the start was to be the everything store. And so they're like like most of these tech giants, I mean, you know, they they what they publicly sell is we're gonna make your life easier and better. And what they and what they sort of like privately sell is like 
we're going to dominate the world, right? We're going to make it so that everybody has to use our product. And Amazon has, has succeeded to an incredible degree in, in, in making it so that just like when you need to buy stuff, you go to Amazon. It doesn't even matter what the stuff is. Yeah. And, and, um, but again, it was done partly, as you said, it was done partly by losing money for decades. Like if you can lose money, you know, 10 years straight, um, just, um, and, and like have your investors keep sending your stock up because you're amassing power while you're losing money. I mean, what chance did the, did the incumbents ha- stand against a company? Like, you know, your, your Barnes and Noble or your, you know, whatever, a, a retail chain that's in shopping malls and you have to make money and you're facing a competitor that, that can lose money for as long as it wants, as long as they're putting you out of business. I mean, it's just, and they've, so they've done it. And now they're, now they're huge. They're dominant. I mean, I think, um, I have to, let me see what I can say about this. I think that, that it's, that it's, worth considering even if the even if the giants um you know uh, even if the tech giants are in a down moment right now even if they're laying people off even if they seem a little less unshakable than maybe they did a couple of years ago um is it worth as a, as a society just looking at the incentives that that drove them to get so big in the first place is there any way we could you know we could sort of disincentivize companies um, driving, you know, having a, as a business model, we're going to drive everybody else out of business and then jack up the rent and, and become kings of the world. Like, could we, could we somehow make that cycle less likely? Who, who is the we in that sentence though? Because you mentioned Elizabeth Warren earlier, right? That was like a centerpiece of her primary platform did not go that far, though she is still pushing for this in the Senate. Um, is it the upstart Amazon labor, labor union, which has had some victories, notably in the JFK 8 warehouse in Staten Island, but then not in its in its subsequent ones? Or is it us, right? Is it is it the, the consumer where it's really easy for me when I know that we're out of baby wipes for me to just go blip, 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 baby wipes and not walk down the street to the drugstore? Like, where... I, I guess I wonder, like, how how does that collective will get harnessed? I think I think it's probably everything. I mean, you, you look at like um, I, I don't think individual actions alone are gonna are gonna make all the change. Um, I think incentives are more powerful than than um, you know the ability of the consumer to 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 change society. But that's certainly a part of it. I mean, the fact that people kind of hate Facebook now because of because of the bad things about Facebook, that makes a difference, right? That does matter. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think I think that that reckoning with the power that these companies amassed, and and sort of the good that they've done, and the damage that they've done, and like how can we steer things more toward the good and away from the damage, and how can we make sure that there's still room for upstarts and innovation? That's like it's a slow, messy process. I'll leave one one thought about that is that like all of those other bigs, like the big business, the big banks, big tobacco, big pharma, you know, they've all been regulated over the years, but in every case, it took a long time. It took a lot of change in attitudes. It took regulation and it never happens quickly. And and they still haven't gone away. None of them have gone away. I don't think big tech is going away. I do think there's, you know, there's hope that we can um, manage it a little bit better in the long run. You brought this to like a beautiful end. So, I saw the um, little timer ticking. So I was like, oh, better, better get some <laughs> better get like a big yeah. wrap up statement. Uh, we are officially out of time. Will Remus, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for being here. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, Lizzie. 
That's it for today's episode. Thanks to Will and Lizzie for the talk. This episode of Crosscut Talks was produced by Seth Halloran and engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Anne O'Dowd. Madeline Happold managed our audience engagement. And you can subscribe to Crosscut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. We want to know what you think. For the latest political, environmental, and cultural news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's live events we host or the in-depth reporting we do every day, go to CrossCut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to on-demand programming on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Paris Jackson. We'll be back soon with another conversation.